America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Another great day with uh, maybe some great feelings of, well, movement. Maybe it's progress. Maybe it's miraculous. But Americans of uh, different political perspectives, particularly on the issue of violence, firearms, the uh, dangers to our school children, uh, this with copycat cases emerging all over the country, it's all gotten so serious that there seems to be an indication of people coming together and coming together around um, an, unlikely, <laughs> an unlikely leader on this issue. And when I say an unlikely leader, it's not anybody I'd really thought of as a leader before. But Matthew McConaughey, who was, I've told you he's a good writer because the book that he did that was a big bestseller was clever and showed intelligence and some flair for writing. Okay. But all of a sudden, he just uh, gave a press conference uh, and a speech based upon a column he had done yesterday a column in the Dallas Morning News that ran in USA Today. Powerful stuff. We will get to that in just a moment. There's also um, stories about Russia sending in more troops amid a barrage going on of the eastern Ukraine. It's eyeing another key city. Uh, Moscow is weaponizing fuel supplies. Zelensky is saying he will fight for all territory. These are drudge headlines. The uh, COVID cases, uh, the COVID cases <laughs> spectacularly up in terms of the daily average. Uh, they are not up. They're about the same when it comes to deaths. But what does that mean that we have uh, in June 6th of uh, 2022, we have 13 times the uh, number of cases, new cases, that we had on June 6th of 2021. Uh, what it means is that people who would like to believe, who want with all our hearts to believe, that uh, COVID is over, it's no longer a danger, that's obviously premature. And yes, there's a um, headline in a Wall Street Journal, Pessimistic Mood Deepens, Wall Street Journal, National Opinion Research Center poll. It's a huge poll. It's a poll of Americans about how we feel about our country, about ourselves, about our own lives. And this is not a, um, a, a golden moment coming into the summer, coming into the 4th of July, celebrating, oh, things like D-Day, uh, which, uh, again, heroic moments for America. We need some heroic moments. Uh, 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number here. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. Okay, he, he largely restated at the White House at the press conference uh, his column that he had done. And both are just excellent. I mean, they are moving. The way the column began and uh, begins, I am a father, the son of a kindergarten teacher, and an American. I was also born 
in Uvalde, Texas. That's why I'm writing this. And then he says, I believe that responsible law-abiding Americans have a Second Amendment right enshrined by our founders to bear arms. I also believe that we have a cultural obligation to take steps toward slowing down the senseless killing of our children. The debate about gun control has delivered nothing but status quo. It's time we talk about gun responsibility. And then this, and this is just a well point, good point, and it's very well made. He writes, there is a difference between control and responsibility. The first is a mandate that can infringe on our right. The second is a duty that will preserve it. There is no constitutional barrier to gun responsibility. Keeping firearms out of the hands of dangerous people is not only the responsible thing to do, it is the best way to protect the Second Amendment. We can do both. And then he went on to talk about uh, his visit with some of the Uvalde parents. And uh, he met with uh, Joe Biden earlier today, too, and to other uh, members of the Senate. But then he had these moving remarks that he made at the White House press conference after the meeting with Biden. Uh, uh, listen, this is clip one. These bodies were very different. They needed much more than makeup to be presentable. They needed extensive restoration. Why? Due to the exceptionally large exit wounds of an AR-15 rifle. Most of the bodies, most of them mutilated that only DNA test or green converse could identify. Many children were left not only dead but hollow. Then he went on to talk about what he learned in talking with the Uvalde community. We heard from we heard from so many people, right? Families of the deceased, families of mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, Texas Rangers, hunters, Border Patrol, and responsible gun owners who won't give up their Second Amendment right to bear arms. And you know what they all said? We want secure and safe schools, and we want gun laws that won't make it so easy for the bad guys to get these damn guns. And uh, then he talked about what actually needs to be done and is very close to what the Congress seems to be working toward. Here's Matthew McConaughey. We need responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun ownership. We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle to 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them. These are reasonable, practical, tactical regulations to our nation, states, communities, schools, and homes. Responsible gun owners are fed up with the Second Amendment being abused and hijacked by some deranged individuals. These regulations are not a step back. They're a step forward for a civil society and, and the Second Amendment. And uh, then he goes on saying, no, these laws won't be a cure-all. Listen. Look, is this cure-all? Hell no. 
The people are hurting. Families are, parents are. And look, as, as, as divided as our country is, this gun responsibility issue is one that we agree on more than we don't. It really is. And uh, we will get to the rest of his remarks. Is it going anywhere? Well, basically, the leaders on both sides, on all sides in the Senate, uh, do believe that there will be, could be, should be, enough Republican support to move forward, at least in some of these areas. There was, uh, by the way, right here in the Seattle area, there was... um, uh, yesterday, a um, um, police were on campus at Edmonds Woodway High School. Why? Because a 16-year-old student had made a credible threat about shooting up the school. And for people who don't know the Seattle area, this is a, a, a an extremely pleasant, safe, uh, and desirable to live in uh, suburb. And... Uh, it's unbelievable. School is working with the Edmonds Police Department. Police said Monday morning the 16-year-old student was booked in juvenile jail on suspicion of felony harassment. Uh, we will get to more coming up on the MedVet Show. Now's the time to join the millions of Americans who have changed the quality of their sleep with my pillow. My pillow is now listening to uh, Matthew McConaughey, who, who look, he, he's a fine actor, but uh, somewhere, somehow, he also ended up becoming a a gifted writer, it's impossible to read this column that he wrote about gun responsibility. He says, don't call it gun control, call it gun responsibility. And support the Second Amendment. And uh, and then speaking today at the, at the White House, um, it's very, very tough to argue with what he is saying. And uh, remember there was all that talk about he was thinking about running for governor of Texas. And uh, actually he was polling way ahead of uh, Greg Abbott, the the current governor of Texas who's running for re-election against Beto O'Rourke. If they had a three-way race, what do you think? Uh, Beto and Greg Abbott and McConaughey. Uh, and this is not listening to him on anything else. It's just the guy is persuasive, emotional, seems patriotic, and very impressive. He uh, puts down in the um, uh, in his column, the column that inspired this appearance today, the author is a native of Uvalde, an Austin resident founder of the Just Keep Living Foundation and father of three. And he also is resisting the idea that this should be a partisan issue, which is very important. 
Because, no, this shouldn't be the, the kind of issue that the Democrats try to use to make some desperate play to pull out an election that they're probably going to do very poorly at. And, frankly, it would be a great thing for Republicans to, to actually accommodate people like McConaughey, who are talking in reasonable terms, not talking in, in radical terms at all. And if you look at uh, what he talks about as a gun responsibility, it's not radical. And in that basis, it should be bipartisan. Here is McConaughey from just a couple of hours ago. Listen. But this should be a, a nonpartisan issue. This should not be a partisan issue. There is not a Democratic or Republican value in one single act of these shooters. It's not. But people in power have failed to act. So we're asking you, and I'm asking you, will you please ask yourselves, can both sides rise above? Can both sides see beyond the political problem at hand and admit that we have a life preservation problem on our hands? Okay, yes, we do. And there are more people who are killed of suicide. There are more people who are killed of homicide than are killed in school shootings. But th this, at a time when American education in general seems to be so much under attack, when Republicans, I think, have done a very good job of standing up for some of the values of American education, standing up for some of the ideas of teaching our, our children some positive images and realities of America's heritage, of America's past and present. You need all of that. But above all, you need a more concerted effort to convince Americans that our schools are safer and that we don't get stories from all around the country like that story I just mentioned at the Edmonds Woodway School District, the, the idea of these sick and, and demented and, yes, evil uh, copycat killers or would-be killers. Uh, this is a chance to rise above politics, in other words. Listen. A chance right now to reach for and to grasp a higher ground above, above our political affiliations. A chance to make a choice that does more than protect your party. A chance to make a choice that protects our country now and for the next generation. We've got to take a sober, humble, and honest look in the mirror and rebrand re ourselves based on what we truly value. What we truly value, we got to get some real courage and honor our immortal obligations instead of our party affiliations. Enough with the counterpunching, enough of the invalidation of the other side. Let's come to the common table that represents the American people. Find a middle ground, the place where most of us Americans live anyway, especially on this issue. And then uh, it talks about how the divisions aren't that real, really, or deep or profound. Listen. We are not as divided as we are being told we are. No. How about we get inspired? Give ourselves just cause to revere 
our future again. Maybe set an example for our children. Give us reason to tell them, hey, listen and, and watch these, these, these men and women. These are great American leaders right here. Hope you grow up to be like them. And let's admit it. We can't truly be leaders if we're only living for re-election. Let's be knowledgeable and wise and act on what we truly believe. Again, we gotta look in the mirror, lead with humility and acknowledge the values that are inherent to, but also above politics. And then he, uh, he talks about mass shootings in the past and he comes back to at the beginning of his remarks, he had talked about each of the little girls and boys and one who was looking forward to going to SeaWorld and and then uh, Joe and Irma Garcia who were looking to build a new house he looks back on all that in a very emotional conclusion listen we start by making laws that save innocent lives and don't infringe on our second amendment rights we start right now by voting to pass policies that can keep us from having as many Columbine, Sandy Hooks, Parklands, Las Vegas's, Buffaloes, and Uvaldes from here on. We start by giving Alethea a chance to be spoiled by her dad. We start by giving Nate a, a chance to become a marine biologist. We start by giving Ellie a chance to read her Bible verse at the Wednesday night service. We start by giving Irma and Joe a chance to finish painting their house, maybe retire, get that food truck. We start by giving McKenna, Layla, Miranda, Nevaeh, Jose, Javier, Tesro, Helio, Eliana, Annabelle, Jackie, Azuya, JC, Ava, Amory, and Lexi. We start by giving all of them our promise that their dreams are not going to be forgotten. We uh, Matthew McConaughey speaking today from the White House. <laughs> Can we do better in terms of leadership? What about Ukraine and what's happening now? And is it true that the Russians really are on the rocks? There are some experts who say... No, the Russians are resurgent. We'll get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. Here's a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about... Michael Medved Show, always an honor to welcome back Elon Berman, who is a senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council in D.C. He's an expert on regional security in the Middle East and Central Asia and in Ukraine and the Russian Federation. He's consulted for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, as well as the American Departments of State and Defense. Ilan, uh, there was a disturbing column in the New York Times on Sunday, and uh, over the um, uh, under the heading "Russia is down but not out," and basically the column by Andrea Kendall Taylor and Michael Kaufman was making the case that uh, 
uh, Putin made crucial errors at the very beginning of the invasion. You made the same case. But now they were recalibrating, and they were still a very formidable power. Is that the uh, unpleasant, uh, unpleasant reality we have to recognize? So, uh, hi, Michael. So uh, I, I think there's uh, quite a bit of truth to that for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, I, I think we do ourselves no favors in extrapolating the Russian failures from the early stages of the war uh, into its latter stages, right? I mean, we're looking at a conflict that's over 100 days old now, and it's clear that the Russians have shifted their strategy. Instead of, you know, uh, doing regime change in Kiev, they have a more limited uh, tactical approach. And, you know, they're throwing—they're willing to throw uh, quite a lot of firepower and personnel into that meat grinder in order to eke out something resembling a political victory for Moscow. And I, I think that's the, the, the second problematic element, which is that the, uh, the Russians blundered so significantly uh, in the early stages of the conflict that uh, what you have is a situation where um, it, it's almost uh, very—I uh, I think it, it's very hard to figure out what Russia might consider a palatable political victory. Um, Vladimir Putin has climbed on this ledge. It's very hard for him to climb off. Obviously, if he admits defeat, if he goes home, if he pulls back his troops, the political consequences uh, could be lethal at home. I mean, quite literally so. And so what we're looking at now is a situation of, uh, you know, catastrophic success in the sense that uh, in order for Russia to have a success, something they can trumpet at home and it can trumpet on the world stage, the war actually has to get bigger and more severe. You um, you have a new column, and we've posted it up at our website at michaelmedved.com, uh, under the heading, The Ukraine War Has Become a Waiting Game. And with the waiting game going on right now for Russia, you and I both know they are very conscious of the American elections coming up this November, and then of the even more important election coming up on, on November 24th. Uh, there's very, very good evidence that uh, the Russians tried to play with our elections in 2016 and 2020. Uh, do you expect that they will try to at least get closer to that uh, claim of victory by manipulating American politics in any way? I, I mean, I think that's certainly an element. Um, I think what they're banking on even more, though, is this idea of fatigue. Um, I mean, if you look at the track record of U.S. policy towards Ukraine uh, in the last eight years since the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014, it was very clear that uh, American politicians on both sides of the political aisle very quickly got tired of the Ukraine issue, wanted to turn the page. And my sense is that this is what the Kremlin is banking on in terms of our politics, but also in terms of European politics as well. Late last month, the uh, European Union passed its sixth sanctions package, which includes uh, a provision uh, that will uh, cease all, nearly all imports of oil and natural gas from Russia by the end of the year. So the, the play that the Europeans are making is that uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying very slowly to turn off the tap, and over time, this is going to make the Ukraine war fiscally unsustainable for Russia. But 
the clock is working for the Russians as well, because the Russians understand that the longer they can hold out, the longer they can make incremental gains on the ground in Ukraine, the more likely it is that the United States and Europe are going to tire of the conflict and are going to, you know, push the Ukrainians for some level of compromise, uh, something that the Ukraine that the, uh, we aren't doing right now and something the Ukrainians aren't willing to accept right now. What about the Russians using that weapon of uh, their uh, oil supplies uh, to uh, try to basically convince Americans, Americans, civilians, voters, ordinary people, that, uh, hey, if uh, you come uh, put pressure on Ukraine to basically surrender, uh, then uh, your gas prices will go down. Uh, that to, to blame... Uh, the ongoing war and America's support for Ukraine to blame that for the high cost of fuel. Well, I, I think that that's uh, very much a distinct possibility, and it's actually one that uh, feeds right into the Biden administration's public messaging. Because obviously, the uh, the rise in gasoline prices has take, has taken place over a longer stretch of time than just the period that Russia and Ukraine have been at war. But the White House has tried very hard to. Uh, to brand this the Putin price hike, effectively saying that the, the, what we're, the pain that we're feeling at the pump it all has to do with the Ukraine war. Well, that's a message that can backfire pretty significantly because the Russians can use that as a messaging point to urge American voters to put pressure on the administration to roll back support for Ukraine. Right, to make this a domestic political issue. So my sense is this is something that's going to come into more and more uh, uh, more significant play uh, as we get further into the summer, as the price at the pump uh, it continues to go up. Uh, the Biden administration has really created an opening uh, for the Kremlin to manipulate. Your best guess in terms of the waiting game you're talking about, is there going to be some kind of decisive break in the war one way or another before the election in November? So that's enormously hard to tell. I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, uh, a historian, and I even get history wrong half the time. But I got to tell you that uh, if I was a betting man, I would point to precisely this calibration, this question of Western resolve balanced against Russian patience as being the decisive factor. I mean, the Russians are very, very clearly banking on the fact that beginning in the fall, the U.S. is going to turn inward, the Europeans are going to lose their resolve, and there's going to be a slackening of support for Ukraine. And once that slackening happens, all sorts of things become possible for the Kremlin, because it's possible, despite the subpar military performance on the battlefield in Ukraine, to really exact enough military pain to cause Kiev to come to the table. The Ukrainians aren't there now, but I think the Russians are thinking that the longer they can hold out, the more they'll have the ability to squeeze Ukraine uh, to do so. Uh, Ilan Berman, uh, any quick comment on the uh, Ukrainian foreign minister who hit out at uh, President Macron of France after Macron said it was vital that Russia not be humiliated? Uh, Mr. Macron had said it was crucial Vladimir Putin had a way out of what he called a fundamental error. Dmitry Kuleba said allies should better focus on how to put Russia in its place as it humiliates itself. Quick comment? Well, no, I, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, what we're looking at is, you know, these statements by Macron, statements, uh, recent statements by Henry Kissinger, all of them point to this building consensus that we have to give Russia uh, some sort of off-ramp for this conflict. And in the Ukrainian conception, 
that off ramp unfortunately means more pressure on Ukraine to compromise. And uh, and and then also a determination to give Russia some kind of reward for the most ab- abysmal and, in fact, genocidal uh, sort of behavior. Uh, Ilan Berman, his most recent piece, or one of his most recent pieces on the war, is posted at our website. The Ukraine war has become a waiting game. Uh, check it out at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's 1-800-955-1776. And on the Michael Medved Show, there's a couple of pieces of good news that uh, I would love to share with you, and uh, both of which involve politics and pop culture and where they come together, some of the themes of this show. First of all, and most personal, uh, I am thrilled and delighted this week to be back uh, on the air on a great radio station that we always enjoyed working with for many years in the past. Uh, beginning, uh, what, about 20 years ago. And uh, the station is uh, Smart Talk 1580, KGAL, which covers uh, Corvallis and Albany and Lebanon and Salem and Eugene in Oregon. It's a great, powerful Oregon radio station. And we've always had great callers from KGAL. So I would welcome your calls again, same number. It's uh, 1-800-955-1776. And uh, our thanks to uh, all the folks who have made this possible. And uh, just look forward to uh, many new years of uh, continued conversation. And also, the other piece of good news (laughs) is the completely... Uh, off-the-charts success of Top Gun. And uh, $86 million this past weekend, that's $86 million more. Uh, What they are looking at now is a, um, uh, it's generated $291 million in North America, that's U.S. and Canada, and uh, $500 hundred and forty eight point six million globally now please I want you to focus on that for just a moment the Top Gun Maverick has earned more money abroad than it has in the US and Canada and a lot more money and what does that say? It says that with all of the faults, and we know there are faults and setbacks in America, and uh, there are plenty of people who despise President Biden. There certainly were pre- plenty of people who despised President Trump and despised President ba- Obama before that. But with all of that and all the controversy that we have with American politics, the fact that this rah-rah, red, white, and blue pro-military film could be such a hit abroad 
is just amazing. And uh, apparently, <laughs> one of those countries that uh, uh, that that the uh, Paramount release, the Paramount film, is not doing so well in is China. There's this editorial in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and it says Top Gun Maverick crushed box office debut records over Memorial Day weekend, and it's worth asking why. Could this be an entertainment phenomenon that says something larger about the current moment in American culture? Maverick uh, trains fighter pilots for a mission against an unidentified enemy. Though the, uh, uh, the journal reports the film lost a Chinese investor over its pro-American bent. The movie makers, reportedly after some debate, declined to scrub the Taiwanese and Japanese flags off Maverick's bomber jacket. By the low standards of Hollywood, which is typically prepared to placate the Communist Party in search of Chinese box office, we'll count this as courage. The uh, movie is drawing some older folks back to theaters after the long COVID absence from theaters, but let's better hope this pan to fighter aviation captures the imagination of younger Americans. For years, the Navy and the Air Force have been short of fighter pilots. The picture is worse for enlisted service members, such as experienced maintenance personnel. Only about one quarter of America's youth meet current eligibility standards to enlist, and fewer still are interested. To put it bluntly, said the North Carolina Republican Senator Tom Tillis, at an April hearing in Congress, I'm worried we're now in the early days of a long-term threat to the all-volunteer force. Call that a highway to the danger zone for U.S. security. A well-known cast and action scenes may explain much of the Top Gun success, but it's nonetheless notable how many Americans are turning out to see a movie valorizing the military. The progressive lectures about the U.S. as a racist or evil society will continue, of course. But it's encouraging that the people still cheers, cheer when American aviators take down the bad guys. Yeah, and it's not just the sensational box office here in America. It's the box office in Europe and in South America. And in much of Asia, you don't think those um, um, people in Japan, moviegoers there, moviegoers in South Korea, uh, a, a few moviegoers in Taiwan, appreciate the, uh, the role in their defense and survival of the American military? Look at a $548.6 million global box office take. And congratulations to uh, Tom Cruise and everybody else involved with this. I mean, maybe this is not as directly involved with a, an issue of public concern as this. And there's a great statement we were featuring earlier by Matthew McConaughey. But it, uh, it, it also does indicate that sometimes, every once in a while, uh, Hollywood can make an unexpected uh, contribution. Uh, meanwhile, there uh, is this contribution about the uh, relevant to the primaries today. There are seven states, including California and South Dakota and Mississippi 
and uh, New Jersey and a number of very crucial states that are holding primaries today. What will they tell us about uh, the political perspective right now? Well, you want to talk about something else that I think you have to consider good news? Shocking news, maybe, to some. On CNN, not Fox, on CNN, Harry Enten predicted that this election was going to end up with a big, big Republican House majority. Uh, this is clip 18A. So basically, I took the best Republican positions on the generic congressional ballot at this point in midterm cycles since 1938. That generic ballot basically is, uh, would you vote for the generic Republican or generic Democrat in your district? And guess what? Since 1938, the Republican two-point lead on the generic congressional ballot is the best position for Republicans at this point in any midterm cycle in over 80 years. It beats 2010 when Republicans were up a point. It beats 14, 2002, 1998, where Democrats led by a point. And in all of those four prior examples that make this list of the top five, look at that. Who won a majority? It was the Republicans who won a majority. Okay, and then uh, Harry Enten says this, 18B. My estimate for the 2023 House makeup, if the election were held today, which again, it isn't, we still have five months, five months from tomorrow, would be Republicans 236 seats to 241 seats, Democrats 194 to 199. That's based off of a formula of seat-to-seat -seat race ratings from both the Cook Political Report and Inside Elections. That is okay. a stomping, or that would be a stomping. Yes, it I guess. would. We'll a stomping? Well, they they do have uh, the new Jurassic Park movie coming up. Is, is that appropriate for a stomping? Uh, we will be getting to that in time. We're also going to be talking to uh, uh, Mr. Allen of uh, the um, uh, NBC News and uh, talking about what the primaries mean today, what they hold, Jonathan Allen, and... Uh, we're going to also be talking about a prediction, a bold prediction by uh, Brett Stevens of the New York Times, who suggests that when all is said and done, the Republican nominee won't be named Trump, and the Democratic top nominee won't be named Biden, and won't be named Harris either. In fact, the Democratic nominee that he suggests is um, a name that you may not have even heard in this context. Who would that be? We will get to that and to uh, much more. Uh, we'll also be talking about a new poll that shows, despite some of the positive developments we have been speaking about in the last few minutes, uh, there's a general aura of gloom surrounding the United States of America. How do we dispense with that, or pierce it, or turn it around? That and more, coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.